Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Joined this week by co-hosts Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us on the air. Get your opera voice heard. 847-866-9687. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with tenor Jonathan Zeng, who's currently singing the role of Edwin in Chicago Folks Operetta's production of Emmerich Kalman's The Shardas Princess. Find out why this piece has been largely ignored on American stages and about the ways in which Jonathan prepared to play this unique role. And then in Shock Talk, it's the OBS World Cup. Our panel predicts the outcome of the world's greatest sporting event. How? By using each country's contributions to opera as the deciding factor in their respective soccer matches, of course. Plus 9.40 p.m., two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. Plus our hot team's hot takes on those stories. Well, we got a hot team. Yeah. Really nailed it. Really nailed it right out of the gate. I'm yeah. feeling really loved right now. Well, that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tobias right, you're pretty hot. Thank you. I literally am very hot because it is so muggy. But my air conditioning got fit and fixed in my apartment. So Yay. I know everyone was wondering about So your apartment would also be the extremely hot Matt Cummings apartment. It is true. It is the extremely hot Matt Cummings apartment, which I will let him speak However, for. the hot Weston Williams does not live in <laughs> those other guys' apartment. I mean, I got enough hotness for, for, uh, for both of them combined, you know? You know <laughs> okay. how it is. You know, with all this talk of the World Cup, and we'll get to that in, in 30 seconds, I need a different sport, Matt. You know, any Joel, recommendations? I might have witnessed a sport that is even more fun, exciting, and suspenseful than the World Cup at a bar in well, Wicker Park this weekend. What and might that, that be? That sport is a. Uh, it's shuffleboard. Well, of course it's shuffleboard. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you knew that it's uh, the new sensation that's sweeping the nation. Uh, <laughs> literally sweeping the nation. Okay. Dude, you're so cool, Matt. Out with the youths and do fun things. You're very hipster. Oh boy, uh, Toby, you've been watching World Cup, right? I have been. Yeah, I've been really enjoying it. Good. I'm on. I feel like this is so basic of me, but I'm really rooting for England. Well, you should be rooting for my team, of course. Can I just say, if you were born after 1990 in these between these two studios, and I don't know how many of my guys that is, uh, you have never seen England in a World Cup semifinal. Even I was just a lad. Well, a wee lad. Just a young warthog. <laughs> when I but was a, a young warthog. Thank you. Are they going to go all the way, George? Are they going to do it? When I don't know. if I, I have a bad feeling that we're going to lose to France in the final. Don't try and tell me that the World Cup is not political, by the way. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if that, were, if that were true, Russia would still be in it. Well, my son was cheering for Russia all the way, and I, he had to cry on my shoulder when Russia went out in a penalty he, shootout. Did you he should watch our... Icarus. It'll change his mind about Russian athletics. <laughs> did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's We're just going to burn George's He's seen enough Russian victories already in the world in his <laughs> life. I tried to tell him that, and he just wasn't listening, so I don't get it. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks, Norm. You're listening to Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. It's one of the most popular operettas of all time. The Chardas Princess was composed by the Hungarian Emrich Kalman, who, along with Franz Lehár, who wrote The Merry Widow, 
was the most popular composer of his time. The opera premiered in Vienna in 1915, and since it's been performed all over the world, although not as often as America as you might think, tenor Jonathan Zeng returns to Chicago Folks Operetta, having appeared in last summer's production of Kurt Weill's opera Johnny Johnson. Versatile in musical theater, opera, oratorio, and concert repertoire, Zeng has performed throughout the United States, including right here in Chicago with the Grant Park Symphony Chorus. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, good evening. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight, my man. So this opera came to my attention through an article on the WFMT website talking about the the past history of Kalman and this piece. Give us the Cliff Notes version because that's all our brains can handle, <laughs> probably. Sure. How, how do we get into this piece? Well, um, you know, uh, you mentioned that this is one of the most popular pieces in Europe, operettas in Europe, and it is, and I had never heard of it before being um, cast in this role or auditioning for the piece. But in 1915, Kalman wrote this just before the beginning of the First World War. Uh, he lived in Vienna at the time, and um, it has since become, as you said, one of the most popular stage pieces in Europe. It has had a couple um, productions in the U.S., including a short one in Broadway, uh, I think back in 1917, but it really hasn't picked up steam here like you might like you might expect it to, uh, and that's why it's so exciting to do it now, because the music is is really pretty stunning. And is there any reason for that, that it hasn't been done in the U.S. as much as some of Kalman's other pieces or as much as uh, Lehar? Franz Lehar. Yeah, I don't want to call him his rival, but, I mean, obviously Lehar is a a heavy hitter. You know, I don't don't know enough to say that there's one specific reason why it hasn't become popular. I think the fact that it was written during the time or right before the time of the World Wars and and the the struggle of Kalman in his life uh, during those decades that probably contributes to it. Um, he, as I said, wrote this in 1915, but and stayed in Vienna through World War One, but eventually had to flee. Mm. Uh, went to Paris for a while and had to flee Paris, and then ended up in the U.S., uh, where he struggled, I think, as a composer at the beginning and and really didn't find his, his footing that in, in California as he had hoped he would. So I think all of that contributes to the reason why maybe we don't know it uh, as, as well as we should. Um, I'm thrilled to be learning it now, though. It really is it's pretty remarkable. Now, uh, I was reading that this was Kalman's daughter, Yvonne Kalman. She, she came to see the production in yes. Chicago? Yes. Yvonne Kalman, um, Emmerich's daughter, is a champion of his works, and she came to see our opening night just this past Saturday, and she stayed also and saw our matinee performance yesterday afternoon. And she was a delight and so encouraging (laughs) and so complimentary and such um, a positive influence uh, in in the world of operetta and and really such a, a genuine, honest, um, torchbearer for her for her father's music. It was it was it was great to meet her. In the WFMT article, she's quoted as saying that the piece is a classic about two lovers who cannot be united because of their different backgrounds. Tell us a little bit about the role that you're playing, Edwin. Sure. So my role, my role, Edwin, Edwin uh, Ronald Carl Weilersheim, is from the Viennese upper crust, and he has fallen in love with. Uh, this beautiful cabaret singer who works in his family's factory, um, and he's not supposed to do that. <laughs> she's not of the right class. She's not from the right side of the track. Uh, her name is Silva. And so there's a back and forth about whether or not he's going to end up with her. His parents have arranged for him to marry someone from the proper side of the track, um, and that's been in the works for years. In the end, well, I don't know if I should give it away. Oh. <laughs> but in the, in the end, in the end, it, there's a twist in the story, and it turns out that uh, Silva is not the only cabaret singer to marry into the Weilersheim family. 
and so it's uh, it, it it all ends up uh, happily ever after. <laughs> it really sounds like sort of the quintessential uh, early teens Viennese operetta. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right, I, I feel right, like right, I've kind of heard it before, comedy. but uh, yeah. but those are always a lot of fun. Um, but I think that I think the interesting thing about this, obviously, uh, in addition to operettas, you do. Um, what we might say, more serious classical roles. You do uh, musicals. Mm-hmm. What is it like to kind of uh, take a stab at a production, an operetta like this in comparison to some of those other roles that you do? Um, that's a great question. I think the thing that's great about operetta for me is that it combines both the, the sort of high art singing of opera with the everyday vernacular of our of our you know our, our native tongue and there's there's a lot of wonderful dialogue and and um, scenes that don't involve singing but there's also the the the, the use of fully supported trained classical voices um, and so that's that's a neat combo in the musical theater that I've done which I love um, it's a different kind of singing, and it doesn't it doesn't make use of all of that training that I've that I've had, and mm. and so you know it's it's rewarding in a different way. And what's it like as an opera singer and someone who you know we most of our work is this this the actual singing and then acting, and then I'd say for most of us probably dance is a distant number three. <laughs> what's it like to to do a show where there's so much important dance that really makes a difference in the success of it? How do you make that work as oh. someone? Yeah, that's... that's <laughs> oh, is question. that how well it's going? <laughs> the, the, the no, <laughs> no, you just tapped into my deepest fear as a performer, <laughs> uh, is the dance. You know, um, as a classically trained performer and opera performer, prior, before getting into musical theater, that's my training. We don't have dance um, mm. background. And as you all know, you don't go to dance class, or at least not very many people do. Definitely so not. No, me, we're all shaking I our heads. Feel, what's that? <laughs> we're all shaking our heads in agreement <laughs> yes, with you. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, so for me, it's always a challenge every time I'm in a show that has dance. Um, and, you know, a, a number of the ensemble members of this production do have a much bigger dance background and have obviously had some great training, and they look fantastic, which makes me feel even more <laughs> uh, nervous about my attempt. <laughs> but, you know... Uh, the director and our choreographer did a really great job of working with us um, and, and, and designing dance that fits our skill set. Yeah, um, and so, you know, so, so it's come together nicely, and I feel good about what I'm doing, and I think it looks great, and it's not as challenging as maybe some of the other people in the cast have to do, and they're looking great at what they do, so it all it makes for a, a good uh, final package. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking with Jonathan Zhang. He's appearing in the current production of the Chardos Princess at Chicago Folks Operetta. Jonathan, this is Toby Wright. Um, good to talk to you. And Great to talk to you. Um, so after, after hearing what you just said, I know what you fill out on audition sheets and you say that you're a singer that moves, not a mover that sings, right? Exactly. <laughs> what does that even mean? I mean, don't we all move? <laughs> I don't. I haven't um, moved from this spot in years. Um, so I'm just curious. Can you tell us a little bit about the rehearsal project, specifically for this? Like, what was it? Did they help you learn the background of the piece and why they chose it? And did folks operetta specifically kind of share with the singers that are a part of this show what their mission is, um, as and and what they see as their vision as and their role in Chicago's uh, music community? Absolutely. Um, so this one thing that's cool about this production is that it is a new English translation um, written oh. in part by our uh, the artistic director of the company, Gerald Franson, and he is also the director for this production. So, um, and that's part of what they do, a Chicago Folks Operetta, which I think now is actually just called Folks Operetta. That's a, a name change as of this year, I believe. Um, they champion unknown works or, or, or little-known operetta in the U.S., and they often do it by writing new English translations that work for our time and our city and our country, um, and, and it's, it's pretty special to be a part of that. The, this production, for example, similarly to what you might have seen it in a Gilbert and Sullivan production, 
some of the comedic numbers have, you know, current event references um, mm. to sort of capture something that's happening here and now, and it connects to the audience in a new and real way and, and, and brings a, a sort of playfulness to, to it. Now, does the uh, new translation, is it just like little sort of pop cultural references like that, or does it substantially change the thrust of the story? Um, do you know? Uh, I would, there, there is definitely, you know, it's an entirely new translation. So it's not just the cultural references. There are some changes in the story to sort of update um, the way we perceive these characters. Um, so, yes, I, I, that's the short answer. There are changes in the story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, so uh, uh, now this is a storefront opera company. Um, um, do you find that rehearsing for a storefront is any different from uh, uh, larger venues? Or uh, what, what are some challenges that you might face with a storefront? And what opportunities do you have in a storefront compared to where, well, wherever else you might be singing? Well, uh, you know... First off, we don't get paid as much as bigger companies. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel is, you. you know, but 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 I but you know that going into it, I'm not I'm not involved in this production for that primarily. Um, I'm involved with it because it's a it's a unique role, um, and and I get to do this unique role with a company that has a high level of artistic integrity, um, and that's that's I think a benefit of storefront companies in general is we get to to be involved with productions that we maybe won't be considered for with a big company. Mm. Um, and so that's great. And that's a good opportunity for me. I will say that this company, though maybe considered storefront, has a pretty high production value. Um, and you know, the set is fantastic. We have a 24-piece orchestra that sounds amazing. Um, and so storefront, yes, but they're definitely squeezing every last penny out of those dollars. And, uh, and, and it's really come together nicely. The rehearsal process, I would say, you know, the challenge, I think, for storefront rehearsing is that most of us have other jobs we are doing during the day, and then we go to rehearsal. Um, and that's hard, you know, because you're tired. Right. For me, I'm a voice teacher um, and performer, so some days I teach a full day of voice lessons, and then I have to go to a four-hour rehearsal and sing, you know, with a fully supported classical sound and that's that can be tiring uh so that's a challenge for sure but it's, it's certainly worth it jonathan you're also working on a project uh, this is on your own time unrelated to the folks operetta project called songs that speak it was in chicago yeah. it's going to cincinnati what's it all about songs that speak is a cabaret that i uh, put together just this past year it's an idea that i've had for for a very long time um, a way to kind of bring together songs that have spoken to me throughout my life or that speak in a, in a very real way through me. Um, I'm collaborating with a couple of fantastic musicians, um, Michael Oldham, pianist, composer, um, Daniel Eastwood, percussionist, and, and they've just jumped on board with me. We've had a couple of sold-out shows in, in, here in Chicago. We're super excited to do it in Cincinnati anybody's there August 24th, you can get tickets at jonathanzing.com. And you can get tickets for the Chardash Princess through the folksoperetta.org website. Two more weekends, Friday through Sunday this weekend and next weekend as well. Jonathan Zang, thank you so much for hanging out with us this evening on the show and best of luck for the rest of the run. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. All right. Ciao. Good night. It turned out that... um, Kalman also wrote a piece called The Duchess of Chicago, or The Duchess from Chicago. It was about Matt Cummings. It, okay. <laughs> it's uncalled for, <laughs> but not inaccurate. It's, it's being done in Leipzig, of all places, just getting the stats off operabase.com. It looks like they're doing some sort of a Kalman festival with like two, a production of actually Chardas Princess and then this um, uh, Duchess of Chicago as well, with a new production of Chardas Princess at the Volksoper Wien. Also in September, of course, that is the big house in Vienna, which was the home of Lehar.
Yeah, <laughs> the big, the big rival. The you big gotta watch rival. out for it. I want to see those guys fight. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, who I would you bet see. money on? Like in a physical all-out brawl? I mean, they both have. Uh... Lehar could buy a victory with all those <laughs> all those merry widow residuals that are still <laughs> trickling in. That's pretty true. Uh... Although I I don't know how much of this music you've heard. Anybody in the studio? But... I, I've heard bits and pieces because yeah, Anna Trebko used to excerpt it piece. at Actually, like pops concerts. There's a, some of it's really quite beautiful. It really is good. I I. I I, Jonathan I, mentioned like some of the melodies and and I mean it's you don't always get that I feel like in an operetta it doesn't always come through at least as like a serious musical piece. Yeah, you do you do with Kalman and you do with Lehar. I yeah. mean you just go out humming it, you know. Hey, the OBS team decides the World Cup based on opera prowess. That's next only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That is what is in your ear holes right now. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. It's America's talk radio show about opera. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687. Time to get down to brass tacks, gentlemen. Those gentlemen, by the way, would be myself, George Cedarquist, with Tobias Wright. I'm still here. Matt Cummings. I'm getting pumped. Weston Williams. Woo! So what I did is I took the round of 16 bracket from this edition of the World Cup, six, the 16 remaining teams, and I took the actual pairings that we have, and I said, well, what if we were to pick a winner in all these matchups purely based on opera metrics? So the composers from uh, that country or the singers or the opera houses or the directors, could we pick a winner? And that's what we're going to do tonight. My boys have uh, done the research. They've got their their countries all ready to go. I've never been more nervous. For no need to be. Did you know there was going to be a test? There's, there will be no test. Well, we are. I gonna... felt like I was preparing for a test, though, with we're... the research I was doing. This is good. Makes you I guys brought a textbook a with bit. me today. Nice job. Nice from, job. From that master's degree that I purchased. All right. So the first round, here we go. It's... Uh, the Giants of Uruguay. Let's go. That's Toby's team, represented uh, or uh, facing off against Portugal, represented by Matt. Everyone's right. favorite Iberian country. Matt, take that, Spain. Take it away. <laughs> take it away, Matt. What's what's your point about why Portugal should go on to the next round? So. Portugal maybe does not have the most prominent place in European opera history, but what they do have, smack dab in the middle of Lisbon, is the Teatro São Carlos, I think is how you say that in Portuguese. It's something like that. Uh, it's a beautiful Rococo theater, really elaborate, and they do crazy productions there. They recently did up a ring cycle by Graham Vick, where the audience was sitting on the stage and they built a platform over the seats and the the actors used that and were climbing up into the boxes and stuff like that it's a pretty strong start tobias uruguay what you got well (laughs) let's talk about the operatic history in uruguay and portugal are the winners (laughs) (laughs) all right over to the other side of the bracket Uh, Weston Williams, you drew Russia. Hey, wait, can we? Can I chime in really quick? Sure. That's accurate. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously. And it actually is kind of sad to learn about the, the lack of operatic history in Uruguay. Although, well, okay, cool. 
Portugal win. Well, uh, but over South America in general, I think we're going to see as we work through this bracket that that there. It's a little more concentrated. There's some That's pockets true. of really it's active. concentrated. Yeah, yeah I'm not yeah. going to say it's not there, but it's definitely concentrated. So Weston's Russians <laughs> facing off against Matt's Spaniards. Weston. You're going to go first. Okay. Well, we got a, a, a few things going for us over in uh, Russia. Uh, first How of all... How many did you cheat on? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to start with uh, the singers, I think. Uh, there are lots of big names. We've got people like Dmitry Vorostovsky, Anna Netrebko, Fyodor Chapilan, uh, Olga Borodina, etc., etc. The list goes on and on. Uh, you even, even outside of specific performers, you have the uh, specific Russian sounds, the, the Russian bass, for example. The Russian tenor uh, have these, these distinct categories which are very prevalent even in the West outside of Russia. And it's not an exaggeration to say that in Russia there are so many opera performances going on that there are plenty of greats that have never even had to sing in the West. Got it. So Weston's making the case with his singers. So he, what you got, Matt? He's actually picking somewhere where Spain can compete. I mean, if you're talking about just the recorded history of the last century, you got Teresa Braganza, you got Victoria de los Angeles, you've got Montserrat Caballé, Alfredo Kraus, Giacomo Aurigal, Pilar Lorengar, Jose Carreras, Placido Domingo. And then if you go back even further, you have like really legendary singers who acted as muses for really important composers, like Isabel Colbran, who was Rossini's wife, and he wrote many, many of his operas specifically for her voice, or like Maria Malibran, who was a member of the Garcia family. I mean, the Spanish history of singing is pretty strong. And it, it, sorry, go ahead, man. And, and tough to beat, I gotta say. Yes, this one is gonna go down to a penalty shootout with the Russians winning. Yeah! Just, oh. ver- just barely. When you're looking at who's coming out of Russia today, who's still alive that's singing, and that's singing at that big level, it, they are going to be Russian. So I'm going to make the call for Russia. Moving on to the other part of that corner of the bracket, it's uh, Matt's team of Denmark. I'm workout. <laughs> I know, against Toby and Croatia. All right. So, so uh, oh, I don't know where okay, to start. So, no, no, I, I'll start. <laughs> Croatia also lacks a little bit in history. <laughs> However, they do have the great... And I do believe that that's accurate. Uh, soprano Zinka Milanov, uh, who had a major career centered around the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. Um, I mean, it was a career that spanned several decades, and she was known as one of the top Verdian sopranos in the entire world. So I'm that is my Croatian hope. Anything from the Danes from that? I mean, she was probably pretty expensive. And if you're going to talk about expensive, Copenhagen has the world's most expensive opera house, which cost nearly uh, half a billion dollars for them to build. <laughs> uh, it, it was re- it was, it's a modern. They they replaced their the old one that was in the that that's in the city. And it, it read the Wikipedia article about it because it's pretty incredible. But that that num- that price tag alone is. Is staggering. It's an excellent point. Money talks in sports. Denmark beating Croatia to go on to the next round. As we go down into the bracket, now this is going to, I think, be interesting. Weston with Sweden against Switzerland and Tobias Weston make your case. All right. Well, Sweden has a certain advantage in terms of its opera singers. If you look up like Swedish opera singers just googling it, you see some real heavy hitters. We got Birgit Nilsson, Jussi Björling, Jenny Lind, Nikolai Geta, Elisabeth Sunderström, Anna Sophie von Otter, Nina Stemma. The list goes on and on. Sweden has got it in the bag in terms of singers. Absolutely. I, I hear your singers from Sweden and I present to you the argument that they would not be anything were it not for the opera houses that they (laughs) occupy. (laughs) And so, in Switzerland, they have some of the most beautiful opera houses, truly, in the entire world, um, both with the Zurich Opera House, uh, Lausanne Opera, uh, the Teatro de Rosimont. There's so many beautiful opera houses all over Switzerland. And also, you want to talk about money talking. George, where do all these these rich opera singers store their money? Offshore accounts (laughs) or in Switzerland? (laughs) This is, again, one that's going to go to penalty kicks. But the point about the opera houses, this is a German-speaking Europe. I understand the point about all those great singers coming out of Sweden. Switzerland. We have an upset? Ooh, startling upset. That's an upset. That's an upset. 
Definitely. I beat Nikolai Geta. You did. Go. You did, man. How often do you get to say that, right? Never. <laughs> All right. This this looks lopsided on paper. It might get interesting. Uh, Matt with Colombia and Weston with England. We're going to start with the underdog here and the Colombians. Colombia is not one of the hot spots for opera in <laughs> Pablo, Latin America. Pablo Escobar. They, they are hot spots of other things. But they, you know, they do have. There is an opera house in, in Colombia that's the Teatro Cristobal Colón, uh, which was modeled after the Palais Garnier and is only in Paris and is about half the size. But this year they're putting on Der Rosenkavalier, which is a humongous undertaking. How do you say wow. that in Colombian? Uh, El Caballero de la Rosa. It, it took me a second to recognize what they were talking about on the website. I have to say. All right, so Weston, if we're just going to compare apples to apples, then we're going to compare. English yeah. opera houses. I think it's not quite fair because England's got a bunch hanging around. The Royal Opera House is, of course, the the big kid on the block. You know, they they do big, large scale operas, uh, and there's a, there's a bunch of others hanging around. But I think the most interesting thing in uh, in England in terms of opera is probably going to be the Glyndebourne Festival, uh, which of course was founded in 1934, and it's one of the most famous opera festivals in Europe. Yeah, England hands down. No I upset. I think you might need to recuse here. yourself, George. <laughs> 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 Moving on then. Uh, Matt with Belgium. Wait, did you pick a winner? I did, England. Oh, Sorry. I didn't even hear it. That was... That was you didn't hear me answer. say that? Uh, okay. He definitely wasn't said really England. listening. And uh, Tobias... I was so upset still by the Croatia <laughs> you, loss. You were. You were. You're smarting from that. Maybe, maybe you and Japan can go a little further. Probably not. Japan against Belgium in opera... Contest. Uh, I'll, I'll continue because Belgium, for a small country, has three major opera houses. There's the Vlamse Opera, the Flemish National Opera, uh, which recently saw Christoph Waltz's directorial debut in another production of El Caballero de la Rosa. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and of course, their, their most important house probably would be Teatro La Monet. Uh, and they, they are consistently putting on really top-shelf, high-quality work for uh, a country that probably a lot of Americans and Tobias. So, uh, Japan, unfortunately, uh, opera being a Western art uh, phenomenon, is relatively new to the opera scene in that they've only been producing operas uh, since the 1900s. But what they have contributed are great singers. Uh, specifically, one that I've always enjoyed uh, is Taro Ishikara, a tenor who for years sang at the Met. So I'm going to say the Japanese singers... But then I kind of defeat myself with the whole opera house thing. It, it is a little bit. Yeah, I, it's hard to deny those big opera houses, those important opera houses in I Belgium. I failed you, Japan. You, you oh, did so fail sad. Japan, which is sad because Japan went farther than expected, I would say, in the actual World Cup, as did Belgium. Belgium is going to take this that uh, brings us to, oh, this will be an interesting one. All right, so Tobias, no rest for the wicked, Brazil... Mm. versus Weston Williams's Mexico team. So for Brazil, I actually am going to go with the same thing that I nominated Switzerland for. Brazil has gorgeous, and I do mean stunning, women. Opera, <laughs> whoa, opera whoa, houses. George. Olympics. No, I, I mean some of the most beautiful opera houses I think in the world are in Brazil, uh, in Sao Paulo, in Rio de Janeiro, and then they have an Amazon theater. Has anybody ever heard of this? Because I hadn't before today. No. Okay. Well, anyway, the rubber industry in Central uh, in the jungle was booming, and they they just have these stunning opera houses that were built with this uh, when the economy was good. However, Brazil doesn't even really put on operas anymore in these opera houses. So they're big, uh. gorgeous opera houses that could otherwise be occupied but aren't currently occupied by opera companies. Interesting. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to hit you with uh, with sort of a counterpoint from Mexico. Uh, Mexico is uh, sort of one of those opera hotspots hot spots south of the uh, United States. As a matter of fact, they got into opera really early. Partenope uh, by Manuel de Zumaya could be pronouncing that wrong. Apologies to anyone who speaks Spanish. Um, it's the first known full opera to have been produced in Americas, in the Americas. Uh, in, that's in 1711, and it's the first written by an American-born composer. Um, and they have sort of a strong tradition of really early opera that is not really matched anywhere else in the Americas, I think. Especially if you listen to comparable music from the United States, it's nowhere near up to par for at least a couple centuries yeah again for me this is really close but to tip the balance is going to be the singers that i know that have 
come out of Mexico just in my own career, I think that's probably going to tip the balance for me. So Mexico moves on. Brazil, soccer giant, opera giant, not so much. Not so much. Mm. The last of the round of 16, Weston Williams and France against (laughs) Matt Cummings' Argentina. If you're just joining us, it's Opera Box Score WNUR 89.3 FM. We're working our way through the World Cup bracket in terms of opera power. France against Argentina. Matt, make your case. So Argentina is another one of those hotspots in in Latin America where they have a, they have one really famous opera house in Buenos Aires, which is the, the Teatro Colón, and it saw not only many of the most important singers from the 20th century, basically all of them, sang at the Teatro Colón, but also it saw a bunch of premieres of new Argentinian operas by composers like Osvaldo Goliov, Alberto Ginastera, Astor Piazzolla, and some and these are names that uh, have made their way into the standard repertoire uh, that is notoriously biased against people from that area of the world. Mm. Uh, making a pretty good case there, Matt. Actually, Weston, for France, what do you got to say? Well, uh, France, of course, has been around uh, a, a while compared to a lot of the ones on this list. So they have some real heavy heavy hitters in terms of opera houses. You've got things like the Bastille, uh, the uh, I Am Provence Festival. Um, and then, of course, the uh, sort of little cherry on top is the Palais Garnier in Paris, uh, and that is the opera for the Phantom of the Opera, making it probably the most famous opera house in popular culture, therefore a big heavy hitter on our list today. Yeah, Teatro Colón in Argentina is kind of their star player, but I think France wins this one purely based on Viva la France. They just, they did, they just outnumbered, definitely. So then we move on to the quarterfinals, I guess they would be. Uh, Weston and the Russians against Matt and the Danes. So we are we all contributing here in this? Uh, yeah, we, we can duking it out. We can all we can all be part of the conversation, but I'm I'm ultimately going to be the the referee. Well, I think Russia, Denmark, take it away. Okay, starting off with Russia. Russia, once again, we've got a lot of stuff going for us. I'm going to talk a little bit about the the uh, the opera companies in Russia. You have several world world class opera companies, including uh, the Marinsky and the Bolshoi. Um, And uh, and as I said before, we have lots and lots of performances going on in the 1718 season. It had the second most opera performances in the world after Germany and Moscow had had the most performances of opera than any other city in the world. Dang. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. I actually Power. like all of that. Uh, and I'll say, Den- Denmark maybe won't doesn't have as many of the uh, historical composers as some of the other countries on this list, but they do have composers who are currently working. Uh, and one of them who, who really stood out to me is Paul Rudis, who wrote the opera of The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Uh, which is an opera that, honestly, I think that more companies should be doing, if only for the synergy and marketing. It's being done at Boston Lyric Opera this coming season, which is was awesome to see that on their uh, materials. But uh, ultimately, yeah, Russia, I, for me, just too, too heavy here, too deep. Big too, hitter. Big, big hitter, hitter, man. That's what you get. Uh no, no big, fan. no big, no big fan. That's... I'm typing it into the bracket with a heavy. Yeah, you, heavy you better feel dirty so. about that, George. I, f- I do feel a little dirty about that. Spain Ma- could have been a contender. No, <laughs> no, not even close. Okay, so here we go. So Switzerland versus England. Still gloating over our upset over the Swedes. <laughs> I'm not really sure what else Switzerland has contributed to the <laughs> operatic world, other than obviously great singers, and they have a, they do have a thriving operatic economy. You know, yeah. like you mentioned, what happens in Russia, but yeah. truly Switzerland has avoided. Um, there was a brief time, you know, uh, economically, where the state decided to cut funding just a bit, but there was such an outcry. I mean. I don't know. They're thri- I, I don't really know what else to say about Switzerland, George. I failed you here. There's not. A, it's weird because they kind of there aren't great Swiss composers. There aren't great Swiss singers of the you know like not on the same level. Indi- as yeah, some they of these. are individuals, but not as a as a whole. Oh, yeah. I, Plus, the Swiss are just sort of weird. I don't know if that that's not. I mean, fair they're for not as weird say. as the Belgians, but they're pretty <laughs> weird. We're we're Midwesterners. We're kind of weird. Listen, here's what here's what here's what I, here's where England wins for me is that as you start to look at the gathering 21st century repertoire, so much of it is being written in English. Yes, a lot of those composers are American, but a lot of those composers are British, 
And that really counts for something in my book, is to be seeing all these British composers stepping up and really having pieces performed in England, in Europe, and around the world. I'm giving England the nod here. If any of our listeners can... uh Educate me more on Swiss operatic history. I'm happy. Oh, to, yeah. Hit us up on I'm Twitter. Absolutely. At Opera Box Score is the Twitter handle. Moving over to the uh, third quarterfinal, Mexico and Belgium. Ooh. So, Who saw this matchup coming? <laughs> Tacos versus waffles. Here we, mm. Or and fries. You know, they would, that, fries. that's what they're saying. I think, when I was in Belgium, that was the first time somebody gave me mayo for a fry, and I was like, what? And it was delicious. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you guys got it figured out. Mayonnaise. So the thing about uh, francophone singers is that if you were to make a list of the really, truly great singers who speak French as their native language, it's a shorter list than you'd expect. And it's a much shorter list than when you compare it to uh, Germans or Italians. But two of the singers who really would make anyone's list are Josie Van Damme and Rita Gore, both of whom were mm, mm, mm. born and raised in, well, definitely born, maybe raised, in Belgium. Uh, they, they are two singers who really sang everything, especially Josie Van Damme, who is one of the go-to basses for decades and might even still be singing. <laughs> if he's he is alive. eternal. <laughs> Can anybody add to the conversation about Mexico, oh, okay. or was that I, just a lucky break I, I, against I Brazil? This. I got this, George. Here we go. Here we go. I mean, we could talk about some important Mexican singers like Viazon, Raymond Vargas, people like that. But I got three words for you: Placido freaking Domingo. He is one third of the th- of the three tenors. He's a conductor. He's a singer. He is world famous even outside the operatic sphere through his uh, 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 you know crossover stuff. He is a huge name, a, a generational huge force. singer, and somebody who has also tried to ensure that it is that it's safe for the next generation. Absolutely, dude. dude he plays for Spain. He doesn't play. I for gotta Mexico. say, I think that this is a Sidney Crosby situation where yeah, where yeah. Madrid is gonna claim yes. Placido Domingo. <laughs> so you got I, kneecapped. Yeah, I understand your uh, point, but yeah. but definitely you can't play for two teams. Domingo for me is definitely a Spanish player. Disqualified. Player. Disqualified. So, well, we still got Viazon. He's yeah, got at, the eyebrows. I like that you said a Sidney Crosby. I you know, we want a hockey reference. You know, that. I'm from Pittsburgh, and if there's one a thing Pittsburgh. I know about. Pittsburgh. It's that we like sports, and I know a couple names. Belgium takes it right before the wow! break. We're gonna get you your. Oh, we're gonna man. get you your fourth semifinalist. Then we're gonna step aside and wrap this up. Uh, it's France and Portugal for the last spot in the semifinals. Can oh, anyone man. make a case for Portugal being a stronger operatic here's, country? Here's my case over <laughs> France in some of the most important uh, historical French operas like uh, Don Sebastien by Donizetti or uh, Vasco da Gama from Meyerbeer, we got Portugal playing the leading role in, uh, in historical characters. All right, taking the historical route. I, I like your thinking there. I'm going to use everything know, in my man. toolkit, George. <laughs> you're, you're throwing, this is like what, was your, <laughs> what was your case for France in the first round? Uh, it was Opera House. It was Opera, oh, Opera House. House. Yeah, Opera House. Okay. Okay. What about, we got, are we going to talk about French composers? Oh, Take yeah. it away, dude. I mean, Massenet, Poulenc, I think Berlioz, it just goes on and on. It's, Charpentier, it, yeah. Chabrier. Um, uh, everyone. Say, I don't, yeah, it's, I, this is it's over. Too, it's too, too deep. Yeah, yeah there's they had off. Yeah, those royal, those Jacques those bourbon royals loved their loved their music. All right, well, we got four semifinalists. After the break, we will uh, wrap this up and we'll let you know who's going to go all the way. You do not want to miss that. Keep it locked. WNUR eighty nine point three FM Opera Box Score. Live. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? 
or proposed to the barahunk in your life, maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Well, what do you think Oliver would think of this gig? <laughs> what do I think Oliver would think of this gig? <laughs> he would be so upset. Also, <laughs> there would be so many eye rolls going on. I think he would accuse me of taking a fall for like Uruguay <laughs> and like not defending them to the fullest. And you know what? He's probably right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Oliver's out of town this week. George Cedarquist here with. Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams on Upper Box Score. We took the World Cup Final 16 bracket and we looked at those countries and said, who would beat who in terms of opera? We're down to our semifinalists, Russia against England and France versus Belgium. Can I just say this is bizarre in that three of the actual semifinalists in the World Cup are in our bracket? (laughs) This is is very predictive. And I love that the one that isn't is Russia. Right, and and Russia would be here if they hadn't lost in a penalty shootout to Croatia. I'm just saying. Penalty shootouts are kind of weird. They're the if worst. If Toby had known more about Croatian opera, this no, never would have happened. No, I promise you. There's, there's there's not I don't think there's no. much more to know. <laughs> so, Goodbye to all of our Croatian <laughs> listeners. So here we go. First semifinal, Russia against England. How are we going to decide a winner in this clash of the titans? I like this round, actually. Because there's, I think the contributions to opera vastly different like what you Mm -hmm. said george it's so historically significant in russia and though it is currently obviously thriving there england is what we listen to now Mm -hmm. english Mm. music is what we listen to now and that's what is driving younger audiences to go listen to so i but but at the same time at the same time you've got in in russia you've got composers mazorsky borden rimsky korsakov tchaikovsky and of shostakovich alfred and and distinct beautiful sounds that we know are russian what i think is really funny about this round is that it's two uh, countries whose musical history kind of run parallel where most of the music was imported and then you have a group of composers just saying like no we're gonna throw that out and we're gonna make our own Music with the Mighty Five in Russian, or in Britain, and people like Britain and Michael Tippett in mm-hmm. England, uh, or an Elgar and Vaughn Williams, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, where I mean, granted, yeah. I I do agree that England does have more of a spread in the West because by virtue of of being in English and having a lot of living composers, but uh, Russia also has a lot of living composers as well, and I would argue that Russia's sort of uh, in terms of music theory, its tonal basis is much more influential in terms of what we hear outside than, than anything that sounds like Benjamin Britten. Uh, do you know what I mean? I think that basically every opera composer who is writing today is influenced by Benjamin Britten, whether they admit it or not. The way he dealt but with think... text, the way he dealt with chromaticism and uh, very theoretically based dissonance. But I would argue that uh, that what most people go to listen to is the Shostakovich-style dissonance, the more visceral sort of um, rhythmic uh, hits, uh, very much more uh, in terms of revolving around a mode, but with that, that clashing dissonance at the moment. I don't think that Britain is as accessible as even uh, as as some of the Russian composers would the be. The War Requiem so, is one of the best-selling album, classical albums of all time. But, it's but at the end of the World day, if you're going to go sit in an opera house, do you want to hear a Russian opera? And that, in the grand scale that that is, or do you want to hear the stark sounds of Benjamin Britten? I mean, like. I'm going Russia. On George, this I'm doing my best to fight for your Englishman. I'm, I'm, George, I'm trying to chip in too. I mean, look, outside of St. Petersburg and Moscow, give me another opera house. You know, compared to all those venues in London, all the small venues in London, uh, the venues in Birmingham, Manchester, uh, Opera North, Glyndebourne. It. This is so. This is so close for me, and I'm. It's really tough to make a call. I, I cannot. Especially with the England bias. I, I understand, I understand <laughs> that. And look, if we weren't English speakers, honestly, I don't think we would give England as much credit for its impact on opera. But, you know, hand, from Handel on up, an oratorio, it's going to go to England for okay. me into the final. Okay. Okay. Moving over then, other side, semifinalists, Belgium and France. This is so difficult. You might think, that, this. You might think that Belgium is spent. 
when I talked about their houses, I talked about their singers. There's another person who started as a singer but has become a musical institution recently who comes from Belgium, and that's Rene Jacobs, who, as a conductor, as a music historian, has really revitalized, uh, in, in a lot of ways, the way that people look at and make recordings of Baroque and classical era music. Uh, he he's a he's controversial. He is iconoclastic, and his his recordings of Mozart operas are exciting. Even if you know everything about these operas and have been listening to recordings of them for years, his are different and they're new and they're fresh. And what else is opera about? Okay, mm. and I'm going to pull out a, a new trick from France too, which Ooh. for me is is the directors, directors like Patrice Charot. Pierre Audi, Luc Bondy, these are titans of directing. They're running opera festivals. They're directing productions all over the world. These are very, very important uh, men. And the people I mentioned are all men. I know there's female French directors as well. Uh, Marianne, I cannot remember her last name. Um, that tips the balance for me. I'm putting France into the final. Oh, that's the director bias. And it, it no, is. No, Belgium didn't really have anything <laughs> I think, else. I so think it I think was that's the right fair. choice. <laughs> but they did. They had a good run. Hey so, guys, where's Italy? <laughs> where's the USA? Where's Germany? Ugh. Oh man, what, what a great honestly World though. Cup it's been. Where would USA have have done in our competition here? I think they would have done pretty well. They would have gotten stopped if, stomped if Germany was still. It, in it depends on the draw a little yeah. bit. You know, yeah. would they have been in the semifinals? Probably not. But they probably could have stood up to Croatia. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really good point though. I mean, again, we're basing this on the actual World Cup, right? Italy did not qualify for the football World Cup. Germany crashed out before making it to the round of 16. These are two... This would be a very different World Cup for opera, for soccer, if those countries were in. For opera and for soccer. In that (laughs) order. (laughs) For opera and for soccer. Here we go. France versus England for all the marbles. That is an ancient blood feud right there. It really is. It really is. I think think we've just got it. We've got to go very quickly by category here. Rameau, Berlioz, Gounod, Bizet, Massenet, Debussy, Ravel, Poulenc. Dude. Purcell, Benjamin Britten, Thomas Sadis, George Benjamin, Ethel Smith, and good old Gilbert and Sullivan. Exactly. And good old Gilbert and but Sullivan. But we didn't even get to people. We didn't even get to Offenbach or right. Uh, oh, we didn't even talk about Handel. Oh, okay. He, yeah, he's German. Well, he he he. he no, he's he, English. He, he, yeah, he he moved here. Can't play for both teams. Ter- you wouldn't know it from the, his text setting. In terms uh-huh. of the opera houses, it's it's like a virtual tie. There's there's yeah, probably more in in. France, I guess, but it's like super, super close. I really feel like listeners will be upset if France doesn't win. Yeah, I got to say, I think that France completely revolutionized (laughs) Italian opera to make it more friendly to what they wanted to see, which was language and dance. Beautiful point. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's a beautiful point. France is our victory. <gasps> Viva la France. <laughs> Viva la France. <laughs> is that our prediction for the winner of the World Cup that as is, well? That has to be All our right, prediction yeah, here we go. for the winner. You heard, winner. It, you heard it here first. Oh, jinx. <laughs> I'm going um, I'm I'm to find a way to post this bracket on the uh, website, operaboxscore.com. Love to hear what you, our listeners, think. You can call us 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at operaboxscore. We're going to... Get to your two-minute drill right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines and opera news. Everything that you need to know from the past week or so. British composer Oliver Nussen died yesterday at the age of 66. He conducted his first symphony with the London Symphony Orchestra at age 15. And two children's operas, Where the Wild Things Are and Higgledy Piggledy Pop, occupied his middle years. Bernard Foucault is the director of the Aix-en-Provence Festival. His tenure ends this summer. And during the past 11 years, he's made the X Festival feel more connected to young artists, to the new work, to the operatic canon, new audiences. He's going to be missed. On last week's show, we mentioned that Roberto Alagna had withdrawn from singing the title role in Wagner's Lohengrin at the Bayreuth Festival. His replacement will be Peter Pachawa. An article in Sunday's New York Times observed that, quote, the lights of Los Alamos, the birthplace of the atomic bomb, can be seen at night from the idyllic open-air theater of Santa Fe Opera. So around here, John Adams and Peter Sellers' opera Dr. Atomic about the bomb and its creators is not just a meditation on the invention of a weapon that changed the world, it's a local story. 
A recent video of Sundra Radvanovsky, the soprano, performing in a concert version of Verdi's Il Trovatore suggests a wardrobe malfunction in the upper underwear department when she was at the Paris Opera. On the disabled list, South African soprano Pretty Yende has pulled out of the Munich Festival production of Donizetti's L'Elysée de More next week. Her replacement, the Ukrainian Olga Kulchinskia. And on this day, July 9th, premiere of Aribert Reimann's opera Lear. That was at the National Theatre in Munich, 1978. That's your two-minute drill. And this is Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, all in the house. Oliver Camacho, somewhere out there in the ether, sending us <laughs> good vibes or maybe just hating on us because of the uh, extended World Cup of Opera segment. I don't know what we accomplished there, but it felt like a lot. It, it felt like a workout. It was incredibly cathartic. Cummings, you've really been following this story about Roberto Alagna. Now you know his replacement. Yep. Does that give you pause for thought? Oh, absolutely not. It's the It was the natural choice. Uh, Bechawa recently did this world of rave reviews in Dresden two years ago. It's And it's... Uh, his conflicting gig was a Rodolfo in concert at Tanglewood, which that's a heck of a lot easier to find than someone who can sing low and grin on three weeks notice. Uh, and, you know, it, even though it's been two years since he sang it and it's a long roll, he has got the chops to pull it off. Yeah. I wish I could hear it. Oliver Nelson. I, I sorry, if, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just uh, I'm I'm a Pachawa fan. Uh, I'm not I didn't hear the I don't know if there is a recording of it. There it's a there's a video recording. Is he did it with Netrebko and yeah. uh, Evelyn Herlitsius and low voices who I I'd never be, remember. I'd be curious to hear it. I mean, 2 years is a long time. He's done a lot since then. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how this goes. Oliver Nelson will definitely be missed. You could dedicate a whole show to his symphonic work. And those two operas that he wrote, both based off of Maurice Sendak books. Also, this this thing on um, Sandra Radvanovsky, I, I looked this up, and it, I'm not saying it was lies, but, like, the wardrobe malfunction thing, that was a total bust. It, but um, Okay. It looked, okay. Like an, it looked like an optical illusion to me, too. George. But what else? I don't expect any more George, from all of that was such a dad joke. I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad we really brought down the level of our show so you can make that joke, George. I think it really, oh. really helped us out we, here. We blame Slip Disc. Oh, I don't, I don't expect any more of him. Listen, I, 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 I'm not going to get on the Slip Disc thing, but let's wait for Oliver to get back. Matt, over to you. You think that it was um, sleight of hand or... Uh, Costume. It just looks like an unfortunately an an unfortunate dress color and and some mm, to yeah, to me. Oh, so now Matt Cummings is a fashion expert. <laughs> He's the Duchess of Chicago. I can only believe what my eyes are telling me, George. <laughs> uh, hey, oh, Weston, goodness. are you excited about the? Uh, the uh, Los Alamos, Dr. absolutely. Uh, okay, so, uh, so if you, I mean, if you know me, you know I love, uh, I love me some John Adams. Uh, I, the uh, the recording of Doctor Atomic just came out a week and a half ago, and I've been listening to it. Uh, I've listened to it literally four times since it's since wow. it came out. That's I, awesome, I, I, I <laughs> you really it. do love that, don't I you? I really do. I'm a big. I mean, the John Adams was the first uh, opera by a living composer, I believe, I'd ever seen when the Met did the live in HD broadcast uh, ways back, uh, and it made a really really big impression on me um but i think it's very interesting to take it to los alamos because when i was listening to it uh in the in the recordings uh it really does bring out these aspects of new mexico in a very specific way it brings out little cultural things uh like the the uh, the, the native american population in the southwest being very much sort of surrounded and and stomped down but still there still very much connected to the the landscape and the culture there uh and uh, and then of course the specter of you know it just, it's just such a weird image, you know, this this high-tech, explosive, destructive thing going off in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the American desert. In, in it's, secret. It, it's it's <laughs> absurd, but it, it's so it's so very uh, part of our experience, particularly for that area. And I think putting on a production at, at Santa Fe, literally within sight of where, you know, the bomb actually went off, is a very much a coup uh, that Peter Sellers, I'm sure, is very pleased about, um, and John Adams, too. 
too, I imagine. Think of all the hugs he's doling out. Oh, I- <laughs> Taking it back to last oh. week. I'll have to listen if you want to get it. Yeah. Let's wrap the show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Man, that was a lot. Oh, we did it, though. We did it. And so did France. Matt, what's your good call? What's your bad call? My good call is to check out the Broadway concert at Grand Park Music Festival this weekend, Friday and Saturday at 8 p.m., paying tribute to the music of Lerner and Lowe. Ah, yes, Camelot, right? Camelot, My Fair Lady, Brigadoon. They got Ca- some good ones. Carousel? No. That's Rogers and Hammers. <laughs> but you tried. Just making sure you're paying attention. Uh, Toby, what you got? Uh, yesterday, I went and saw the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And I would just like to say, anybody who has an opportunity to go see it, go see it. The entire audience in the movie theater that I was at was crying at the end. And I, I really do mean the entire audience. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song, Vodka Inferno, is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And you can always leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if your team is out of the World Cup. We're back on Monday, July 16, 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, opera news, hot takes. Please join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. <laughs>